0: Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 8, The Unbroken. I'm Brandon Seal. For as much as the Commandant General Juan de Ugalde was cynical, the new governor of Texas in 1787 was sincere. Governor Rafael Martinez Pacheco had personal experience with the Lipanes. He'd been a young officer in 1757, stationed at the Presidio of San Sabah, and was around for all of the drama that followed. None of which, it seems, had led him to view the Lipanes uncharitably. If anything, he thought his past experience helped him to understand these mysterious but undeniably powerful people. The first thing he did when he took office as Texas governor in 1787 was increase the amount of the annual Lipan rent payments. He actually came out of his own pocket to do this, to the tune of an additional 6,000 pesos. He then went ahead and entered into a peace treaty with local Lipanes, ignoring the official Spanish policy of the time that prohibited peace with the Apaches. Within two years, however, this governor would be murdering five Lipan captains in his own house, And justifying it, because the Lipanes themselves have created the excuse the time is right to accomplish their extermination, since they have squandered such a good opportunity to settle in towns or missions in order to preserve their lives. How could things have gone so wrong so quickly, especially for someone who seemed to be so favorably disposed toward the Lipanes? The previous Texas governor had written at one point about the Lipanes that the Indian was an incomprehensible being. And by the end of his term, Governor Martinez Pacheco probably would have said the same thing. And yet the Lipanes surely felt the same way about their Spanish counterparts. The history of Spanish-Lipan interactions is a repeated and tragic cycle of both the Spanish and the Lipanes taking tentative steps toward trusting each other and then having that trust badly repaid. In large part, this seems to be because the Lipanes refused to play the role that even sympathetic governors, like Martinez Pacheco, had in mind for them. True, the Spanish aspired to the incorporation of all native peoples into their empire, in contrast to the Anglo American model that really had no place for natives. But the Spanish Empire was not an empire of equals, and the language they used toward their native subjects reveals as much. Indian communities were reducidos, sometidos tributarios. They were reduced, subjugated, or tribute paying. And the Apaches obviously were none of these. Uncomfortably, in fact, for Spanish administrators, they were the ones paying tribute to their Lipan Apache neighbors, though by calling the tribute gifts, they assuage their egos a bit on this count. And yet by refusing to submit to these Spanish colonial categories, the Lipanes essentially left themselves outside the protection of the law. They became Indios Barbaros on a frontier quote sin le, sin fe, and sinre, end quote. You can see though why a society that still commanded the very profitable Texas Plains trade, and which was heir to a cultural tradition rich enough to predict once every three centuries eclipses would see little reason to yield before a lumbering European imperial power that seemed chronically incapable of keeping its promises. The failed counsels between Commandant General Ugalde and the great Lipan Captain Picaxande in the previous episode only confirmed this. Commandant General Ugalde, you might recall, had first been exposed to Lipanes in his stint as governor of Coahuila a decade prior, and they'd made a fool out of him, so much so that he'd been removed as governor. Well, he was back now on the Coahuila Texan frontier, entirely unreformed in his views toward Apaches, and on a bit of a mission to restore his reputation which meant that this time he would make war on all Apaches, he declared, even those that he found north of the Rio Grande, north of the line established in 1772 as the line between Spanish and Apache worlds. He had used his meetings with Captain Picaczande only to secure the pretext that he needed to launch a war against him, namely the presence of Spanish-branded horses and mescalero captains in Picaczande's camp, neither of which should have been that surprising, but they served as his justification for imprisoning the Mescalero captains that he had invited to a council under a banner of truce in March of 1789. The violation of this truce led Captain Picaxande to break off discussions with Ugalde and abandon the pretense of peace. The great Lipan captain and at least 2,000 of his followers pulled back up into the Texas hill country to link up with other Lipanes there. Ugalde pursued and began coordinating with Comanches, and Catawans-speaking Wichita's in Texas to attempt to reassemble the old Norteño alliance and exterminate the Lipanes once and for all. And this was the moment when those five Lipan captains called upon the new Texas governor at the so-called Spanish Governor's Palace in San Antonio to invoke the protections of the peace treaty that he had negotiated with them in 1787. And yet, Governor Martinez Pacheco had been thoroughly reprimanded by Ugalde for the 1787 peace treaty, and the five Lipan captains who came to San Antonio in December 1789 must have noted his comparative coldness toward them when they knocked on his door. The governor invited them in. Then he closed the doors and stepped outside and came back in with a troop of soldiers and opened fire. A melee ensued. The walls of the Spanish governor's palace were, quote, covered in blood as though five bulls had been slaughtered. The bed, the walls, the chairs, and the tables were bloody. In the end, the five Lipan emissaries of peace lay dead. That same month, coordinated attacks on the Lipanes in their hill country refuge began in earnest. Padawan speaking Wichitas hit them first, and although the Lipanes fought them off, rumors of more attacks to follow led the Lipanes to seek refuge further south, down in the Sabanao River Valley, where Commandant General Ugalde was waiting for them. On January 9th, 1790, Ugalde, with 200 Comanche auxiliaries, surprised a Lipan army in the Battle of the Arroyo de la Soledad, just north of the modern-day town of Uvalde, which actually takes its name from the anglicization of Ugalde's name. It doesn't seem like picac was present at this battle, but it does seem as though the Lipanes involved were part of his alliance. It was a vicious fight that went on for hours, despite the Lipanes being outnumbered and caught off guard. Two Lipan captains fell in the fighting as well as 59 warriors. 800 horses and an uncounted number of women and children fell into their enemies' hands as well. And this is where I declared the Lipanes a broken nation back in Season 1 of this podcast. The Lipanes must hold the distinction of being the Native Americans declared extinct most frequently and most falsely. It's a testament to their resiliency, but also to their enemies' wishful thinking. The Lipanes, however, would continue to disappoint their eulogists. As they had at every other instance, they bounced back from defeat and unleashed an Apache whirlwind on their enemies, raiding deep into Spanish territory. March 7, 1790, saw the beginning of a three-month-long series of attacks on the South Texas Villas del Norte, from Laredo all the way down to Revilla, that would result in 29 dead, including the maternal grandfather of Antonio Zapata from Season 4 of this podcast, September 1790 would also witness an attack on the Presidio del Rio Grande in Guerrero, Coahuila, that killed 22 soldiers and led to the loss of 1,490 head of livestock. The Lipanes took this loot straight over to their gun-running Bidai allies in southeast Texas and traded for 300 good French muskets. The quote-unquote broken Lipanes ended 1790 better armed and perhaps even more in command of the Texas checkerboard than they had started the year. Neither Commandant General Ugalde nor Governor Martinez Pacheco could say the same. By the end of that same year, they had both been replaced. Ugalde, once again for leaving the frontier exposed to the Lipan violence that followed the Battle of Soledad Creek, and Martinez Pacheco because even the viceroy couldn't ignore the apparent murder of Lipan peace emissaries at a peace conference in the governor's home. Their replacements, however, didn't represent a change in policy, not yet anyway. On May 1st, 1791, they invited a Lipan captain to a peace conference near El Remolino in Coahuila and arrested him. The captain fought his way out, stabbing Ugalde's replacement in the back in the process, but escaping. Then the Spanish tried the same thing again on May 12th, this time to Captain Chiquito, who also escaped. The whole peace conference invitation kidnapping thing had now become some kind of official tactic, cutting off peaceful means of discourse between the two peoples and so, once again, all that was left was the universal language of violence. 300 Lipanes rampaged through Nuevo León, killing 37 settlers, taking 25 captives, 1,084 horses, and slaughtering 2,400 head of cattle. Thanks to these victories and to the wealth they generated, Vicac Sande's esteem grew more than ever. Now, he was recruiting as far north as Colorado for his Pan Apache Alliance, which scared the hell out of Spanish administrators in New Mexico. He might also be the same captain referred to as Pascuale in Spanish records in Zacatecas from the same period, which would make Picaxande's domain larger than maybe any other Native American in the colonial period, but also highlights how the extent of Lipan power often gets underappreciated in the English language literature because at least half of their cultural life occurred south of the Rio Grande. Lipanes still constituted the largest constituency in Picac growing alliance, even as it now numbered perhaps as many as 5,000 men of fighting age. The Spanish would never know for sure, because Picac Sande was a master of keeping himself and his alliance off stage as much as possible. But finally, after two decades of quote unquote continuous war against the Lipanes, it had become obvious to Spanish administrators that, quote, the kind of Indian who infests these regions cannot be exterminated or reduced with a decisive blow. End quote. But more, the Spanish were even coming to question the justice of their earlier policy. One observer in the early 1790s wrote, quote, It has been and continues to be our absurd and foolish belief that Apaches are impossible to force into peace and the customs of a rational life. But this is a most patent fallacy. They love peace and hate to lose it. Since the year 1786, when we began to fight them with greater expertise and tactics, we have seen many rancherias from different tribes come in to seek peace. It's true that some rancherias have struck their encampments and gone to seek refuge in their mountains, but if we examine their reasons in honest truth, we'll find that they are justifiable. End quote. One observer was even more damning quote, If the Indians had a defender who could represent their rights on the basis of natural law, an impartial judge would soon see that every charge we might make against them would be offset by as many crimes committed by our side. This same observer also tried to put to bed any delusions about reducing Lipanes to farmers, presaging a century of failed later U.S. policy. One would never accomplish anything by forcing them to engage in agriculture. And that's not really a surprise to me at least. The Lipanes were wealthy traders. Rich people today don't typically give up well-paying jobs to go till the soil. It also didn't help that the Comanches had not proven to be particularly effective or even faithful allies against the Lipanes. Quote, the Comanches found it difficult to pursue Apaches in their own country, even with tracks. The resourceful Apaches dug for water with sticks and used gourds to scoop it out for their horses. The Comanches refused to enter those places because they would lose horses with little certainty of gain. End quote. Also, the Comanches had finally been hit by several waves of European diseases, reducing their earlier demographic advantage, though even now they still probably outnumbered Lipanes 3 to 1. But the Lipanes too were better armed now, and more united than ever under Picac and there are stories of Apache victories in 1791 over 1,000-man-strong Comanche armies, which further reduced Comanche enthusiasm for an anti-Apache alliance with the Spanish. And now that the Spanish had gotten to know the Comanches a bit better, they began to suspect that the Comanches might be the more difficult of the two Great Plains peoples. The Comanches, they realized, quote, are at peace with no other nation but Spain and carry on a ceaseless war with all their neighbors, end quote. Many of the Comanche superlatives fade a little bit, too, once you appreciate that they never had to face the Spanish at full strength. The Apaches, and the Lipan Apaches specifically, had done so for the last 20 years. Well, for the last two centuries, for that matter. And by the 1790s, they had won. Spanish administrators changed course, explicitly adopting a new, if not desperate even, policy of peace with the Apaches. Quote, A bad peace with all the Indian nations who may ask for it will be more beneficial to us than the efforts of a good war. End quote. The Spanish were admitting that without a monopoly on horses and gunpowder, in Texas at least, quote, the Indians have the advantage, end quote. Going forward, the Spanish would buy peace from the Apaches at any price. They would start paying them for livestock they returned, even branded livestock, i.e. suspected stolen livestock. Also, quote, certain trifling defects, end quote, of lipon compliance with treaties would be ignored, removing the discretion sometimes used by colonial administrators to perpetuate cycles of frontier violence enslaving and the deportation of Apache war captives to far-off locations would cease entirely. Cuban administrators had actually been begging royal authorities to stop sending them Apache prisoners because they kept inciting uprisings there. Ugalde's successor as Commandant General of the Interior Provinces led the way by forgiving getting literally stabbed in the back by the Lipan captain that he'd been, admittedly, trying to unlawfully arrest, and going forward, quote, required his officers to learn as much as possible of Apache customs, and expected all members of the presidial companies to learn the Apache language. He wanted Apache friendship fostered in every practicable way, through consistently courteous, patient, fair treatment at every level, through frequent conferences of Spanish officers with Apache leaders, through the officers' cultivation of personal friendship with Apache individuals, and through extended visits to Apache camps by competent, trustworthy interpreters. End quote. This was a major change of policy, and it's a reminder of the strength of the Spanish imperial system that it could see the need for such a radical change and affect it in a fairly short time. In 1793, San Antonio signed an officially sanctioned peace treaty this time with the nearest Lipan captains, most notably with Captain Chiquito, the son of that captain who had first arranged the San Sabah mission and who had all but committed his people to a symbiotic relationship with the Spanish trade colony of San Antonio and who'd been trying to reestablish peace for the last decade despite Spanish attempts to arrest him. Under the terms of the 1793 treaty, annual payments to the Lipanes increased, though there were certain Lipan concessions as well. They would start to brand their own cattle, and they would release certain Spanish captives. Laredo then entered into their own separate treaty with the Lipanes in 1799, again with the increasingly influential Captain Chiquito in attendance. In 1798, the province of Nueva Vizcaya bought peace with the Lipanes and Nuevo León and Nuevo Santander did the same in 1799. The Spanish tended to refer to these treaties as articles of capitulation, which actually works even better in English than in Spanish to capture the power dynamic underpinning these treaties. Because in many ways, they were total capitulations to Lipan demands. Under the terms of these treaties, Lipanes would have rights to trade at presidios, and they would have unlimited rights to the unbranded horses of the Texas plains, which they believed by right had been created for them anyway. And these two were probably their most important geopolitical objectives throughout the colonial period. Even more tellingly, these treaties all but stipulated Apache hegemony north of the Rio Grande for all the lands lying between the Presidio del Norte, El Paso, and the Gulf of Mexico, and as far north as the Colorado River. This decade of peacemaking would culminate in the first ever trip of six Lipan emissaries, four men and two women, to Mexico City to mark this new era of Spanish Lipan relations in a meeting with the Viceroy himself in June of 1799. So, how funny that I and many other historians seem to want to interpret a one off Spanish Comanche victory over the Lipanes in 1790 as the start of a period of decline when everything about the 1790s actually suggests. Period of peace, increased trade, and even an orderly transition of power within the Lipan nation. By which I mean that the great Captain Picaxande recedes from the historical record here, which is a bit of an anticlimactic end to perhaps one of the most important Native American leaders in Texas and Mexican history, but the most peaceful, prosperous moments in history often read pretty anticlimactic in the history books. One account claims that Picaxande died in 1801. Another says 1806, but in any event, he died offstage, of old age apparently. Which is an appealing idea in an epic defined by so much violence that the greatest native captain of the period might have died quietly in his bed after passing the reins of power to the next generation of Lipan captains like Chiquito and Pocaropa and Flaco and others. And the fact that such a great captain should recede offstage so quietly reminds us too of how much of Lipan life we can't actually see in the written record. By the close of the 18th century, the Lipanes had fought the Comanches back north of the Colorado River and reestablished their dominance over their South Texas, West Texas, and Coahuilan ranges. More importantly, as the 19th century dawned, they found themselves on good terms with their neighbors. The Spanish governor in 1800 wrote of the Lipanes as people of quote-unquote good faith and that they were Spain's preferred partners in Texas once again especially after Spanish presidials accidentally killed the son of a Comanche captain in 1801, rupturing for good the fragile Spanish Comanche peace of 1785. Lipanas actually rode with Spanish troops to beat back Comanche retaliatory raids in 1802 and 1803. San Antonio in this period became once again a sort of neutral meeting point, the trading post that most everyone seemed to want it to be. A representative two-month period in 1798 saw 183 Lipanes, 169 Comanches, 68 Catawans, 21 Bidai, and 14 Tonkawas come to town to trade. More and more Lipanes entered the local population permanently as well, not just in the missions, but by marriage and, and on Tejano ranches, where they were sought out for their famed skills as horse breakers. And the market for horses, incidentally, was more robust than ever, thanks to the arrival of yet another square on the checkerboard. In 1803, the United States acquired Louisiana. The Anglo-Americans were relentless traders with an unquenchable demand for horses and an unlimited supply of firearms to buy them with. In 1806, the U.S. government established an official trading factory in Natchitoches, Louisiana, whose only possible purpose was to sell goods into Texas, despite Texas being an officially closed economy. Spanish administrators knew that the 4,000 pesos or so of rent payments that they distributed each year to native Texans would soon be dwarfed by the volume of trade coming across the Sabine River, whether they allowed it or not. And yet, after so many generations of struggle and bloodshed, Texas Indians remained loyal now to their hard-fought and hard-won coexistence with the Spanish. And frankly, the stories trickling in from Indians in the United States gave Texas Indians good reason to be wary of the Anglo-American Republic's Indian policy. And so in 1806, just as tensions with their new U.S. neighbors were beginning to flare, Texas leaders organized a great conference in San Antonio, attended by 300 Lipan, Comanche, and caddoan speaking Wichita leaders. All the attendees from all the nations represented, quote, spoke against the evils of war, end quote. Their speeches left the young Spanish scribe of the conference, quote, impressed and aware of the injustice that is done to the Indians in considering them nothing but savages, end quote. Together, the Spanish, the Lipanes, the Comanches, and the Wichitas planned a response to the Anglo-American threat. First, they defined clear spheres of influence, the Lipanes in the west and the south, the Comanches to the northwest, and the Catowans to the east. And all the tribes swore each other to peace. The Comanches even sent troops to accompany a Spanish expedition sent to the Sabine as a show of force against these newcomer Anglo-Americans. And yet a dollar is a cynical thing. By 1820, that U.S. trade factory in Natchitoches was selling $90,000 a year worth of goods into Texas and buying probably a similar amount from Texas Indians. It was the first phase of a process that would reorient the Texas economy to the east and away from the Great Plains. For the time being, however, it was just an economic boon to everyone it touched, not least of which for the Lipan Apaches. Because even as they were recommitting to help the Spanish preserve the political status quo in Texas, Captain Chiquito sent his son, Huelgas de Castro, open up channels of communication with these new Anglo-American neighbors. Alliance-making was an Apache obligation, and alliance-making was always an Apache opportunity. On the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. And make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina González Dávila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com.